guys to practice saying, you're listening to Baked and Awake. You're listening to Baked and Awake. Don't put your mouth on it. Yeah, why did you push up the uh, pop filter? You gotta stay out behind the pop filter. Hello? <laughs> um, um, anyways. Hi guys, you are listening to Baked and Awake. With... Kenny and Dad and my crazy baby bottle. Done. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Baked and Awake podcast. I'm your host, Steve, and uh, it's Sunday, December 30th, 2018, at the time of this recording. This will obviously probably be our last episode of the year. should be the 64th edition of the Baked and Awake podcast. We'll casually refer to it as a holiday edition. being that it's New Year's Eve Eve at this point, and both Hanukkah and Christmas are in our collective rear views. I think we have only Kwanzaa still uh, occurring presently. Is Kwanzaa, does Kwanzaa start right now or already? Let's see what Kwanzaa is observed. Oh, yeah. Started on the 26th. Goes through January 1st. That's seven days. Three, four, five, six, seven. Yep, seven days. Uh, So, I hope your Christmas and your Hanukkahs were both wonderful, full of family, and great things. Hopefully a couple little fun surprises. Uh, Try not to focus too much on the consumer end of those holidays, but, you know, it's a good opportunity, of course, to show the people closest to you you love them without hopefully going broke in the process. Uh, Certainly falling into that trap in years past. We did a great job, I think, this year balancing things as a family and not going too bonkers with Christmas gifts, with number or extravagance, but, um, you know, everybody really came with thoughtful stuff this year, so... uh, my wife always takes great care of me, and I think she was happy with what she got as well. So, but anyway, that's not important uh, in the grand scheme here today. I do want to, in my usual custom, make sure that new listeners making it to the podcast today, first off, are thanked. Thank you, heartily, sincerely. Thank you for being here. I also want to remind anybody who hasn't figured it out yet, based on the title of the podcast, this is a cannabis-related show. I record from Washington State, a legal region. I happen to work in that industry. We smoke weed on the show. The show has a lot of cannabis-related content. This episode isn't going to be too heavy on it. We're going to move right out of this, these opening remarks, and move right into content that's not cannabis related today but we're smoking so know this don't trip 
Stick around for the good stuff. All right. Uh, that said, uh, you can find this show, again, for new folks who might be listening over somebody's shoulder right now or in a friend's car or at a friend's house or, you know, it's through some other means. You can always find every episode at bakedandawake.com. You can find me on any major podcast application that you care to use. iOS native app, Google Play Store, any of the third-party apps. If you can't find me on a platform that you're listening to your other podcasts on, I would love to hear about it. I'd be surprised, but we could probably figure it out. Okay? Um, so, bakedandawake.com, any podcast app you care to find. You can email me anytime with, speaking of having trouble finding the podcast, or maybe you have feedback on the show, maybe you have a suggestion for a topic that you'd like to hear me talk about at some point in time, maybe you want to get on the line with me and chop it up about something sometime, let's talk. Email me, talk to us at bakedandawake.com. Uh, I want to thank all my friends and compatriots over at the Damaged Goods Network, you can also find my show as well as several wonderful shows from great independent podcasters. All of them are very different than me over at DamagedGoodsInc.com. Also, very happy, as always, um, to have recently uh, made this announcement, but please check out all of my friends at the Dark Myths Collective. I am very pleased to be affiliated with the Dark Myths Collective these days. Darkmyths.org is their website, and there are a number of really wonderful, heavy-hitting podcasts, all of them very different, once again, than my own, but like Damaged Goods, they share a common thread. That being, in the case of Dark Myths, that darkness, that whether it is occult or paranormal or true crime or alternative history or controversial topics, whatever it might be, they're in those realms. They're playing in those sandboxes. And those are sandboxes that I have always enjoyed, that I was already playing in, and that I'm oh so happy to begin to become affiliated with some of the creators of the amazing shows that are part of the Dark Miss Collective. Check them out sometime soon. Let them know Steve sent you. I also want to thank my Patreon supporters. You all know who you are. There's just a few of you wonderful folks who interact with me and email me so frequently about the shows with thoughtful, thought-provoking comments that quite often lead to additional investigation on my part, future comments that make their way onto the show for you folks to hear as well. So thank you everybody who helps me there. You can find the link to the Patreon page in the show notes. I want to say it's patreon.com forward slash baked and awake show. I also want to say thank you and give my love to my lovely wife, Nicole, who I've 
mentioned before, you guys can follow a lot of our gardening and homesteading exploits here at the house. A lot of stuff that sort of creeps into the fringes of the show here on Baked and Wake, but that I don't go in too full force on. You can see that content over at an account on Instagram that my wife curates called Bluebird Farms. So Instagram at Bluebird Farms. You can find, oh, you can see our bees, and you can see our backyard animals and our laying hens. We have chickens. Um, and in season, of course, all the fun stuff that we're doing in the garden. So, But uh, Merry Christmas to my wife and to my boys, Ken and Royce. I, I think I am going to be including, by now you will have heard it, a little baby intro from the boys at the beginning of the show today. Uh, you guys are my world, and I love you all so much, and I hope, you know, one day we can look back on these podcasts and be glad I made them. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, all right, so, you know, on to, that's the housekeeping, so to speak. I hate to call all of that housekeeping because it's stuff I like to say and it matters. I, I want to get that message out every time to everybody you know who's supporting the show who's behind the scenes who's on the team and how grateful i am for all of you that includes you all you listeners so uh speaking of listeners and and recent you know efforts uh last week's episode on well it's you know almost two weeks ago now uh two weeks ago i released an episode i think it was like the 19th you know rolling into towards christmas time uh, on the mud flood and Grand Tartaria. Okay, so this was a, you know, amazing seeming newer topic. I don't know if we're considering it a conspiracy or a mystery um, or what just yet. I, I think the the direction we're trending is towards conspiracy slowly but surely here with the research on this. Let's, excuse me, let's take a puff talk about that but that that episode is turning out to be my most popular episode ever by all standards i have to measure things so smoking here smoking on a little bowl of our lake of fire my own homegrown strain here lake of fire for those who uh, may not recall uh, i believe is uh originated by Red Eye Genetics and is a cross of Cobain Kush and Gorilla Glue number four. Uh, anyway, mud flood, Grand Tartaria. The mud flood event said to have occurred potentially uh, more than once in in history, but uh, most recently about 150 to 250 or 200 years ago, somewhere in the 1850s. Uh, perhaps it's turning out to be my most popular episode uh, YouTube views are for my channel off the charts or closing in on a thousand views on that one views are by no means a full listen of the episode um, and that's you know that's a tough thing to quantify with podcasts it's really tough for me to know how many of you make it all the way through a show you know I don't make it through every podcast I start I start a lot of podcasts even from people I like a lot and trail off sometimes or get interrupted and don't make it back to that episode and just catch the next episode when it comes in. Certainly, if 
if I'm digging the topic, I usually, you know, make it to the end. But, you know, I know I'm an atypical podcast listener as well for that reason. And, and YouTube viewers, you know, we click around a lot on YouTube, right? Everybody does. It's kind of a thing you do on YouTube. You hop in, you know, start a video. If it's If it's good, you might stick around. If it's, you know, losing its momentum, you might bounce, right? Move on. So... Now, so the YouTube numbers are are one matter. Uh, Full-on regular natural episode downloads as tracked by my podcast host also shows this episode is more than twice as popular as my last most popular episodes and um, has more listens already than any of my historical episodes do for the entire time that we've been doing this podcast. So, heck yeah rad we found a topic people you know maybe find compelling and interesting i am super pumped about it i love it it's a crazy mystery that i hadn't heard of before and that when you're confronted by it by the way if you haven't haven't listened yet go back excuse me (coughs) and listen to the last episode because that's where i introduced it all so um and i'm by no means the introducer of this topic to anybody other than this audience right here, us, the very small community of Baked and Awake listeners. Yeah, definitely not. Um, that said, I like I mentioned, I really, I've been going along and haven't heard about this uh, particular mystery. Been chilling you know, on the internet looking at weird conspiracy stuff, as many of you know, for some time now, years really. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, where the all the fun stuff is, right? So, um, but nevertheless, uh, I think this is newer in general to a lot of researchers and to a lot of, in this case, YouTubers is who I'm, I think are a little ahead of the podcasters on this one. Um, I haven't found a great number of podcasts on this area this era of history and being looked at in this light at all so yeah you know it feels fun to discover a new mystery that you haven't you know been looking at already for years right so uh thank you by the way to everybody who may be listening to this episode now who ends up getting it on YouTube. Thank you to everyone on YouTube for all the views and also for the comments um, because that's kind of cool. I do really like that about YouTube culture that, you know, people aren't as quiet there. They're not as reluctant to, uh, you know, drop a little feedback. And, you know, not all of it is totally glowing praise by any means. Um, But that's absolutely fine that you tried to listen, you know, and you took five seconds out of your day to message me back about it in in any way shape or form you know that's a form of respect that you know you don't always get um that direct feel of feedback from most of the other podcast platforms right so uh dig that thank you guys thank you youtube listeners and viewers um keep them coming you know engage me there and i'll keep making more content more for there I, i'm thinking about you know 
pulling together. I have a couple of great hardcover books here, for example, that are coffee table style format um, books. One on, you know, architecture, right? Um, metropolitan architecture. Let me grab them. They're right here next to me. Yeah, this one's called World Cities Yesterday and Today. Um, and it has two, over 250 historic maps and satellite images of, you know, cities back in the day and then more modern. And then I have an awesome old, uh, like, Time Life book from the uh, late 60s, early 70s here called The World We Live In. Uh, let's see, what is the publication? Oh, shit. This one's from 1955, actually. It's, it's, even, it's even older than I thought. Uh, again, a really cool... You know, this one's a lot more, like, natural stuff. Um, you know, looking at the contents, table of contents on this one. The reason why I'm mentioning these hardcover books is in the light of... This mystery has sparked curiosity in me. And it's sparked more than casual curiosity. It sparked a desire on my part to potentially do my small part in contributing to the research on this topic because I feel like there's a open call for people to start paying attention to this, look for evidence of a mud flood event and a cover-up in history, potentially, uh, potentially, excuse me, potentially. <laughs> anyway, um, and so what I find myself doing is looking around, looking at my own library and my own you know, stacks here in the house. What have I already got in form of older books that may have old photographs of architecture and cities like that? Um, in the in the, the uh, World Cities book that I just mentioned, this book, The World We Live In, is full of more naturalism, uh, geography, geology, etc. You know, the miracle of the sea, the face of the land, the you know, life, mammals, creatures of the sea, coral reefs, etc. So, you know, it's but what I'm looking for here is potential photography of natural features that could be, uh, you know, looked at with new eyes and potentially reinterpreted in the form of potentially, I don't know, remnants or ruins of megalithic structures from a previous civilization that are now buried under, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years of debris and and sediment um yeah fun stuff like that yeah of course like i'm gonna be the guy who discovers anything i know you guys but what i am doing is doing my legwork is spending more time in more places than just youtube despite what some of you may think it's not the only place where podcasters get our information <laughs> um you know, is so-called crackpot videos on YouTube, most of which are actually fucking really well done, by the way, you guys. A lot of the stuff that I come across, as weird as it might be, is amazingly well done and amazingly well researched. And if people would simply look at it with an open mind and listen to it with an open mind, they might be surprised at what they might learn in many instances. It doesn't mean some of it isn't disinformation. It doesn't mean a lot of it isn't doesn't mean a lot of it isn't just plain wrong, wrong-headed, and maybe in some cases, I don't know, malevolent or devious in intent in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I tend to think a lot of it is very well-intentioned and 
not intended to be disinfo or confusing or red herrings, um, but is in fact, whether right or wrong, whether high fidelity or low fidelity, whether it's falsifiable or not, the motivation behind the dissemination of the stories and information that I'm directing my attention to in these realms is stuff that's intended to help us break free of our misconceptions, our confirmation biases, our it's to help us resolve cognitive dissonances that we may have. It's to help us advance forward in consciousness in some way that is constructive, that is working towards enlightening. I don't think I'll make it to enlightenment before I'm done with the time I've got here on this earth, but and we never know how much time we've got. Many of my friends, a very few of whom might be listening to this podcast right now, know that all of us in the local Seattle two-wheeled community lost an amazing member of our family about a month ago now. And all of us have already had a month more wonderful days with our families and friends and a Christmas holiday that our friend Marty and his family don't get to have together. And that man was the same age I am, you guys. Rest in peace, Marty. You were an amazing guy. Amazing dad. Pretty fun scooter pal, too. But yeah, we're not going to, you know, very few of us will make it across the finish line of enlightenment, become bodhisattvas, and stay behind to teach the others the way. But what I can do is value my own time that I do have, cherish it, be glad of the meager intellectual resources I do bring to the table, and use them as well as I'm able, as well as I've been trained to. There's a lot of things that I like to question and be critical about when looking at public education these days, but it's also really easy to recognize when I'm in a room with a few people who stuck with it, went to university, went on to higher education, pursued, in a few cases, I'm very fortunate to know a few people who are, you know, actual intellectuals in their adult career, and, you know, they have a few more tools in their toolbox. Got that background, that liberal arts, whether it's philosophy, history background, it helps, it gives you grounding. It also may trap us a little bit in some ways, may, well, you know, box, box us in to a certain 
point of view because we've been oh there goes my book because we've been educated to think a certain way to look at results that have already been reported by others and accept them as solved and move on obviously I fundamentally challenge that sort of you know permanent point of view um insofar as science only improves through constant like criticism of itself right someone purports to have answered a question through you know forming a theory refining that into a testable hypothesis experimenting against the hypothesis using what we call the scientific method, right? Some sort of academic rigor. And then allowing the results to speak for themselves of the experiment. Experiments and their results are only as good as their repeatability, right? Um... And, you know, my awkward fumbling with this is a very poor way of saying that what happens in practice is sometimes these days appears to be the opposite. We've seen report after report in recent years that have been published, you know, reports about studies that have been published in quote-unquote peer-reviewed journals that, come to find out, are patently false or misleading. They're studies by supposed scientific, academic, like medical organizations of different types, whether we're talking pharmacological or whether we're talking simply uh, academics of the mind, psychology, etc., these, like, institutions of education are funded heavily to the tune of many millions of dollars per year in all these different departments and sciences. The money comes from private corporations that fund research, that they have strong sort of expectations of outcomes out of. And we seem to see over and over again that the, you know, illusion of propriety that exists there between those organizations and the institutions of education in many cases that are charged with the, you know, the guardianship of or the verification of the value versus risk of many of these programs that then go on to be implemented or in the case of inventions and or uh, chemicals and, uh, you know, things that become part of our diet or our, our uh, medical field, pharma, pharmacological uh, therapies, etc. 
this stuff is affected by money. It's affected by money to an extent that research that doesn't support the foregone conclusions that the funders of the research want to see happen doesn't get funded in the first place. And if your results from the research that they do allow you to do contradicts or in some way reflects badly upon a technology or an industry that is perhaps responsible for millions or billions of dollars of revenue a year, those results don't see the light of day until they've been corrected. I'm soapboxing, so I'm going to come off of it. I'm going to get back to Tartaria. In the case of the Grand Tartaria mud flood mystery, uh, to tie up that sidebar, what I was saying is I have a few books, others as well, besides those two I just mentioned, here in my own collection. I have access to the public library system still. I have access to uh, used bookstores still. And I think I'm going to be keeping a bit of an eye out for books of photography and opportunities to uh, perhaps maybe even make some trips to some archives, right? I believe we've got municipal archives of different uh sorts you know like at the town level and at the larger city level and maybe even at a state level um you know much of which can be queried uh much of which have documents that may be in the public domain without getting too ambitious let's see what i can start learning in my own backyard about my own backyard because there is a lot of Pacific Northwest connection to the mud flood sort of mystery and uh, so that means that we can field trip about this we can go out and perhaps lay eyes on some of these sites I think we even have fortifications and star fort type architecture here in the Pacific Northwest another related topic to the mud flood topic. I think I indicated last episode uh, that this episode might be Starfort related, uh, but I want to spend more time talking about this episode, talking about what I'm looking at in the mud flood gestalt. Okay, what's the over, what's the big picture of the mud flood question that I see so far, and I'm I want to share with you a couple of the researchers that I'm enjoying, yes, on YouTube. (laughs) Um, And, you know, get some of you going, looking at this stuff as well with me, so we can have those side conversations about it. Let's go to our notes here on that. So... People have been looking at this for a couple of years already, two, three years for sure, maybe four, maybe 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 some have been looking at it for ages, I don't know, but it's 
being content is being made for it, some of which goes back a little ways now. I just found it in the last few weeks, however. But none of the videos that I'm coming across in terms of YouTube docs are more than a couple years old. And then there is a, a book and a website, which is a huge resource that we're going to look at briefly as well, but that I will point you guys at from sort of the chief Russian researcher and, and alternative chronology proponent evangelist, Anatoly Fomenko. So, and and I, I mentioned his name first because he's kind of maybe one of the grandfathers of the recognition of this bigger picture that is the mud flood, you know, myth and or conspiracy, whatever we're calling it. Um, who have I been watching? Okay, so there's a YouTube channel that I mentioned last episode called Mud Flood. Definitely check out that dude's channel. He's great. He's got a lot of videos out already. Uh, he's got a nice, calm speaking voice. And, you know, a lot of what he's looking at is old photos and it's speculative analysis of the photos. So, you know, any armchair fucking quarterback who wants to shoot this person down can do so all day long if you just want to sit there and be a Debbie Downer, right? Sorry, Debbies. Don't do that. Look at the pictures with your own eyes. Uh, a lot of these folks, Mud Flood guy, I can't remember the guy's first name um, right now, but uh, there's a researcher also called John Levy. Uh, th these will be, by the way, links in the show notes, as always, for you guys. So, you know, link in the show notes. That just go there. Look there. If you're on YouTube and you are listening to the episode and you do want to peek at the notes, a lot of times they show up kind of broken on YouTube. So, um, if you can drill back to the actual podcast page, the notes will all be super intact there, and on the Apple iPod, you know, I, uh, on on the Apple Podcast app, etc. The hyperlinks and things that I leave in the show notes actually work right from there um, when you're viewing it there. I may go ahead and try to upload a separate version of the notes direct to YouTube, so I can try to clean them up and get the links to to show up in line. No promises. So, I'll see what I can do for you guys on YouTube on that front. Um, so, but John Levy, uh, L-E-V-Y, uh, excellent researcher as well on this. Um, has a bunch of videos. Also, nice, calm analysis. A lot of uh, clicking around on Google Earth in his videos and looking at architecture and geological land features. Um I don't know what his background is, okay? And again, a lot of what he looks at, he tells you right up front that he's speculating about what it looks like to him, okay? So it's, you know, take it as a thought experiment opportunity uh, and an opportunity to have someone do light, guided initial research with you themselves because I think that's exactly what he's trying to do for you here is not indicate that, what he's showing you on the screen right then and there is the start and end to the research that he's doing. 
he's sharing highlights with you quickly with us, you know, so that we can see some stuff and zooming in and zooming out and bouncing around and asking questions as much as making pronouncements. Okay. Now, um, another leading researcher who I've been digging big time, another YouTube channel. So I believe he's a Russian, uh, historian, academic, um, and he may just be a guy, but he does seem to be pretty sharp. Uh, I think he mentions somewhere that he's got some background. Um, but his name is Philip Druzhinin. Druzhinin. D-R-U-Z-H-I-N-I-N. And um, Mr. Druzhinin's YouTube channel, very rich with... Him uh, producing a lot of video of him walking, hitting the streets in various areas of Russia. And I believe a lot of what we see is in Moscow in many of his more popular videos. He shows us a lot of the mud flood typical architecture. So to recap, for those who haven't listened to last episode again, just go back and listen to last episode. But... A mud flood affected piece of architecture would be one which is the type of building like I grew up around first back east on Long Island, New York. Uh, and also see here in Seattle, Washington, in many areas of the more metropolitan, more uh, denser urban areas of Seattle. And that are buildings that have sort of basement floors at sidewalk level or halfway below sidewalk level, okay, with windows that are partially above and partially below that sidewalk level. You know the ones, that little well window, little pocket window in the side of the sidewalk usually oftentimes has a little guardrail around it to keep you and your other dumb friends from falling in it off of the sidewalk when you're riding your bikes and your skateboards by, that kind of thing. Um buildings with windows that look for all the world like they would have been above ground at one point in time. A lot of these buildings also have, upon closer inspection, front entrances that are typical of one another in that they are uh, put in a modified opening that may very well have once been a window. Oftentimes with stairs leading up to it because this doorway and new entryway is at a height somewhere in between where a door would have been once upon a time and the new street level where the basement level now is, those half basements are in many instances, you lost, in the case of a mud flood affected building, a former main entrance, and they had to modify a new entrance, which ended up often being half a story up from the street. And so we get those big front stoops and approaches, and a big ornate arch that is more or less made to fit the style of the building that was already there, but is upon any kind of, kind of close critical look can be seen to be an addition and a modification. Mud flood affected buildings often also have boarded up or bricked up, masonried up 
doors or windows from former portions of the building that may have been demolished or removed in the form uh, in in the name of the renovation other typical features of these mud flood buildings will be the fact that that ground floor basement floor is like it's not uniformly underground around the building one side of the building is a little higher than the other in that it's sort of dug into the side of the hill in the back corner along one side, two sides, three sides. So that, you know, one side may be entirely underground at the ground floor level. Whereas the you go around the back of the building or the front of the building now, or yeah, maybe you go around the back of the building and you see you've still got ground floor access and parking and egress to the building around the back where you go around to the front and you maybe have you you realize that those you walked up a hill and a building that's a block long or half a block long half of those buildings lower floors are now underground when you go around to the main entrance in the front well steve you live in a hilly area idiot blah 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 yeah everybody knows about the denny regrade yes i know know all about the Denny, Denny regrade, although I'm going to be looking at it again a lot more closely now and with different eyes. <sighs> mud flood buildings are one thing. Mud flood cities are another. These are found all around the world. Cities that have a history of great fires, earthquakes, other cataclysms that, for different reasons, sometimes explained well and sometimes not so well explained, understood, or remembered, will have caused a city to have decided somewhere in their history to fill in and bury entire historic districts of their town and build anew on top of them in the name of progress, in the name of smooth and level streets, in the name of fire codes, in the name of a million other things, right? In the case of here in Seattle, our Great fire caused massive damage to some of the most historic areas of Seattle. And I'm sure the story told to all of us always has been that those buildings became unsafe and they were very old and some of them weren't built to any known building code, blah, 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 blah. And because of the seawall and because of settling you know, actual physical settling of, of the structures of the buildings and the underlying ground beneath them, we decided to bury 20, 30, 40, 50 blocks of Seattle underground in all directions. We buried a whole city and built a whole city on top of it. Um, we're told most of the old city is completely completely buried and filled in with sediment and is therefore totally inaccessible. You can go on a tour of a very restricted small subsection of preserved, you know, carefully preserved sections of the street. Um, we know for a fact that there's areas that are off the tour for sure aren't filled in with mud and soil, but are just, you know, deemed dangerous, etc. And so we're not allowed to go there. Um, 
I'll make a confession right now. I've never been on the Seattle Underground Tour, so yeah, probably put that on the to-do list here for 2019 is uh, take the Seattle Underground Tour. That would be really fun and possibly uh, informative and at least for the sake of trivia, uh, enlightening for the purposes of our mud flood discussions. But so you look all around the world, you've got, you know, great fires in Boston and great fires in New York and great fires in San Francisco. Uh, I think it was John Levy has a video about San Francisco that he shows on his YouTube channel where he really shows a bunch of really stark aerial photography from that area from the time just dating after a great uh, fire that pretty much leveled that bitch back then. And, um, I mean, it looks for all the world like an entire city was erased off of the map in the form of San Francisco at that time. I don't even know where everybody would have went when all these many blocks, many, many blocks of city were just erased. I mean, they were rubble. It didn't even look like it had been bombed. It looked like they had been just rubbed off of the earth. It was, they were, it was ash. It was crazy. So, um, you know, mud flood cities are also often cities that have been stricken by fire or other catastrophes. And uh, all of them, you'll see as you look into this yourselves as well, they share a number of different things like that. And they also share this like style of architecture that will be present in the most historic parts of these towns or cities that is that neoclassical Romanesque architecture. And we attribute this to the, you know, Roman Empire, um, the Holy Roman Empire or the Roman Empire proper once upon a time uh, and their influence and their lasting influence around the world. But, you know, when you have this architecture all over North America and all over Asia and all over Malaysia and India and you know literally all around the world and we can argue for days about traditional Japanese wooden architecture the pagoda style being utterly unique and different and a, a, a entity unto itself and you know maybe um, the Taj Mahal and Arab architecture with their minarets and spires uh, would be different than anywhere else in the world, but then I would beg to differ with you there and simply point at, is it Moscow, the Kremlin, uh, and the style of architecture that we see right there that is essentially identical. Um, it could be argued that both of those uh, buildings and other sites that are not very different from them, that they also conform to a neoclassical inspired aesthetic anyway. Uh, and I could be proven wrong and probably beaten up a little bit on some of that in terms of the architecture uh, by an architect or a student of architecture. But my point is that the general public 
recognizes columns and arches and megalithic stone and certain other very uh, ubiquitous and like relatable, recognizable patterns and gimmicks and attributes to the architecture are present all around the world and have so much in common with one another that and go back so far excuse me in history that it really becomes difficult at a certain point to subscribe to the well the Romans built it or the conquered people in the nations that the Romans vanquished and subsumed and absorbed uh, but then went on to you know recede from in the sub sub subsequent fall of the Roman Empire uh, that these people not only built Romanesque architecture while they were in charge of them uh, and subjugating them and enslaving them and raping their nation's resources um, and making them observe their religion um, or I should say not allowing in many cases them to observe their, their traditions um, that then once the empire fell that they decided well we like these buildings we'll keep them we'll just you know keep them as our city halls and our seats of government at the highest levels for the next however many hundreds of years and never say, you know what, let's get this colonizer bullshit out of here and put our own stankin' architecture back up in place and use our spaces the way we were using them before, before these, you know, guys came along and, and Romanized us and then left, uh, you know, a few couple generations later. So that's, to me, an enduring uh, and core aspect to the mystery of the mud flood myth and the Tartarian mystery. Uh, Philip Druzhinin, uh, the Russian researcher, uh, has just a bunch of really great uh, hours logged on video of him walking up and walking by and physically pointing at and pointing out and looking at and, and you know grabbing binoculars and looking at the weird gargoyles at the top of these buildings and look at the looking at the aerials and the few cases that they're left still up on top of these buildings um, observing the sacred geometry that's present in the design of the buildings in the case of the religious buildings in particular but even in the municipal and mundane seeming buildings buildings that are post offices and you know municipal storage houses and city halls and things like this <coughs> that may not be the size of the great pyramids but you know are every bit as complex and mysterious if you care to to look at them for anything more than what we're being told they're for, or were originally for. Another researcher I mentioned last week, uh, Sylvie 
Ivanova, Sylvie or Sylvia Ivanova, forgive me, uh, of the New Earth YouTube channel. Link will be in the show notes for them. They have some of the most volume of video of everybody, and they cover a lot of stuff besides mud flood. And, and by all means, you know, um, as I mentioned last week, like, New Earth YouTube is like as as wiggy as it gets, right? Okay? I mean, the first video I ever watched of theirs was there are no forests on flat earth or there are no trees on flat earth, which subscribe to flat earth or not, which I'm not here to say that the earth is not a globe. I do tend to come down on the side of the mainstream and popular science for the most part for once here in that, you know, uh, I see the moon all the time and I've, you know, looked through quite a few telescopes and I don't know, things seem pretty globular to me out there as opposed to discular. <laughs> Flat, motionless, endless plane, uh, Taurus field, hollow earth, what have you that video though the the first video i watched on new earth which was there are no forests on flat earth or there are no trees on flat earth forgive me you look up either of those you're gonna find it really interesting video really just has you sit down and think and has you look at trees differently than you ever did before and has you think about logging and has you think about mining and has you think about you know, enduring myths that humanity has of a tree of life and other great trees of the past. Trees that were magical. Trees that entire cultures were, you know, said to have been built around or dependent upon. Um, yeah, I think they used a few images in that video, like, little clips from Avatar, you know, the James Cameron sci-fi movie from a few years back. Uh, I think they're doing a sequel to that one finally. And, um, you know, they were kind of indicating that maybe once upon a time we had, you know, a lot more amazing trees a lot closer to what was depicted there. We certainly have a lot of symbolism in uh, culture around the world that puts trees, you know, on that, like, supernatural, super spiritual level. One could also, again, argue, you know, get your head out of the cloud, Steve. Yeah, trees are fucking important. They make oxygen, you know. They give us fruit. They give us food. They give us shelter, etc. You know, why wouldn't it be in their art? Why wouldn't it be in their, you know, stories? Why wouldn't it be in our myths, etc.? Yeah, I got you. I got you. Maybe watch the video. They do a much better job explaining it than me. Uh, my point is, New Earth YouTube channel, they're going to challenge you. They're going to challenge your perceptions of, of what your worldview is, you know, if you're willing to sit there and listen to it. And pretty much everything on their channel, with a few exceptions, um, heavier 
Eastern European Russian sounding accents. So it just takes a quick minute to get your ear for it. And once you're comfortable with them, you know, they sound great. They're, they're, they speak nice and slowly and clearly. Um, very erudite. So. Anyhow. Um, I mentioned, yeah, so probably the academic who could be credited with getting this started the most in terms of getting other people fired up because I think he wrote books and I probably should just get uh, his book as well. Let's see the the Wikipedia article on Fomenko here. Anatoly Fomenko is the name of the uh, academic. He's still alive. Um, I am not going to help you right now, Wikipedia. I will pay you another day. I have paid, you know, a little donation once or twice to Wikipedia. Five bucks here, five bucks there over the years. Say what you want about Wikipedia. I think it's an amazing resource. And, you know, you take every article for what it's worth. Sometimes you hit upon one that's a total stinker. And many other times these days by now, man, Wikipedia is a great place to start any inquiry, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so Fomenko's still alive. He is from the USSR, from from uh, the Ukraine, I guess, uh, today. Um and uh, he's a mathematician and a professor, and he's known for the new chronology. Okay, so that's his book, and they they call it here in in Wikipedia. You know, the new chronology is a pseudo historical theory which argues that the conventional chronology of Middle Eastern and European history is fundamentally flawed, and that events attributed to the civilizations of the Roman Empire, ancient Greece, and ancient Egypt actually occurred during the middle yeah let's let's see it middle ages so yeah more than a thousand years later so this was again go back to last week we talked about inserting a thousand years into the historical timeline that we live in today by that Reasoning, I guess, next year would be the year 1019, not 2019. That's crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. Like I said, it doesn't get any better than this, you guys. We're a thousand years off, y'all, <laughs> according to Fomenko. Uh, let's see. Central concepts of the new chronology are derived from the ideas of Russian scholar Nikolai Morozov, who lived from 1854 to 1946. So that would have put him as having been born right after a mud flood event and an adult, you know, 20 some odd years after a, you know, supposed 1850s event like that. Uh, were, although work by French scholar Jean Hardin, 1646 to 1729, so an even older guy, can be viewed as an earlier predecessor. However, the new chronology is most commonly associated with Russian mathematician Anatoly Fomenko, born 45. Although published works on the subject are actually a collaboration between Fomenko and several other mathematicians. The concept is most fully explained in history, fiction, or science originally published in Russian, and it looks like it's a seven-volume book series. 
The new chronology also contains a reconstruction, an alternative chronology, radically shorter than the standard historical timeline, because all ancient history is folded into the Middle Ages. According to Fomenko's claims, the written history of humankind goes only as far back as A.D. 800. There's almost no information about events between A.D. 800 and 1000, and most known historical events took place in A.D. 1000 to 1500. The new chronology is rejected by mainstream historians and is inconsistent with absolute and relative dating techniques used in the wider scholarly community. So, you know, full disclosure here by these guys in the... Uh, this is a Wikipedia article about the new chronology book. So, of course, you know, all these academics, for the most part, are saying, no, we don't like it. <laughs> the majority of scientific commentators consider the new chronology to be pseudoscientific. Interest in the academia in the theory stems mainly from its popularity, which has compelled historians and other scientists to argue against its methods and proposed world history. A second point of interest from the mainstream academic community is to understand why it has become so popular, as to perhaps have the sympathy of 30% of Russians. Wow. It's not really known to which extent readers of new chronology texts regard it as history or fiction, nor are there reliable statistics on who the readers are. Okay, so they're, see, they're just trying to, they're trying to take that statement of the sympathy of up to 30% of Russians right back in a way by saying that's not really known who those people are or where those statistics came from. Uh, the theory emerged alongside other alternate histories and conspiracy literature in the period of increased freedom of speech that followed the breakup of the Soviet Union. So there we go. So we heard from Fomenko after the breakup of the Soviet Union with this challenging history of his. While other authors have written on new chronology theory, such as Fomenko's junior partner, G.V. Nosovsky, and Bulgarian mathematician Iordan Tabov, who expanded the theory in regards to the Balkans, the theory is mostly discussed in reference to Fomenko's writings. So, he's got a, um, he's got a great website here if I can find and we'll put that website into the show notes for you as well because it's basically the I think at this point yeah okay so it's called chronologia.org and just reading up the header for you guys here, Anatoly Fomenko, Gleb Nosovsky, official web project of the scientific direction, new chronology. Chronology is the exact science. So, you know, these guys are Russian. Probably reads, you know, a little cleaner in Russian on their website. New chronology by Fomenko, and Nosovsky is the most significant discovery in the 20th century. There, there's, uh, there's a testimonials. I'm not going to read them. Um, what they've got here, though, is information information about Fomenko and uh, these other guys who uh, collaborated with him on his new chronology theory. They have the history of the new chronology. This is a one-pager. I think I can share this, or we'll paraphrase it, review it together here. Um, because this might 
might really help sort of frame it. So the idea of this episode, by the way, was exactly this. Um, Share these researchers with you, help you understand a little bit of who they are. I have a list here um, below of the things that I'm specifically looking into on this. Um, Why don't I read that to you really quickly? Um, And then we'll go back to the um, the introduction on um, the history of the new chronology, and we'll wrap up with that. But so, what else I'm looking into for future episodes here on this um, is I'm looking into and reading about 1800 and froze to death, which was really interesting. Uh, also known as the year without a summer, and that's 1816. So that's a few years ahead of a potential mud flood event. I'm also looking into the 1901 to 1903 dust storms. Um, I mentioned that phenomenon last episode, and I attached the PDF that I was reading um, that was the report of those uh, weather events on last episode's show notes. So check out the mud flood episode from a couple of weeks ago and look for that under bonus material. If you have trouble finding it, email me, talk to us at bakedinawake.com. I'll send it to you directly. I'm also looking into the War of 1812 that's majorly tied up into these people who are researching the mud flood and the Grand Tartary cover-up, okay? The cover-up of the Tartarian civilization that was not, according to these researchers, a loosely, you know, related band of tribesmen in what is today northern Russia that never had a flag and never had a government and never had a unified language but was in fact a global like hegemonic civilization that existed for perhaps hundreds or maybe thousands of years Um, but was itself potentially inheritors of a former civilization's Benefits, technology, architecture, etc. Also looking into the American Civil War and Reconstruction period. Um, Was Reconstruction a way to finish the demolition and erasure that was started by the Civil War itself and reshape the continent and its cities into a form that would better fit the narrative of history that we were going for at that time. Uh, Also looking into the Spanish-American War. What were we fighting for there, really? And what were potentially the things going on behind the scenes with that one? Um, That was Teddy Roosevelt's... uh, No, it wasn't Teddy Roosevelt's war. Um, Going back further than that, although the Rough Riders, um, that was against Mexicans and stuff, right? Um, and natives Uh, anyway American Indian genocide uh, obviously in North America here that gets tied up into things and where I'm going with that is that's a whole area of study obviously but you know we erased not one people but many different types of uh, you know peoples here in in North America in terms of uh, different tribes with different histories and different lifestyles and I mean just it's crazy and you know in many cases told all their grandchildren and great-grandchildren that they were Africans you know Um, and I say that like you know 
all glibly like everybody knows, but you probably don't know. But stuff like that happened. You know, we really re-identified a lot of Native Americans over the years and married them off and, you know, sent them to orphanages and, you know, and adopted them off to white families and, you know, put ever smaller populations on tiny little reservations. I mean, we all know that story. It's, but we don't know that story because it's not told right. It's not told truthfully. It's not told from the perspective of the victims of it ever at all, ever really, (laughs) at least not. With a loud enough voice. If it was, we'd be living in a different country right now. Uh, I'm also looking into the Grand Canyon as an area of interest on this topic. Uh, we know historically that there are reports of, you know, weird megalithic architecture that's been hidden from us uh, and or destroyed down there. Uh, tombs and artifacts have been pulled out of there. There's stories of giants in the uh, Grand Canyon all day long um, in terms of, like, uh, fossilized skeletons, etc. I think a lot of you will have heard of stories about the Smithsonian Institution taking a lot of uh, artifacts out of the Grand Canyon and surrounding areas. Uh, Sort of, you know, going in there and just sort of sanitizing the whole area. Um, that seems to me like a really interesting area to look at that may, you know, just relate back to the rest of this mystery. We already talked about the neoclassical, the so-called neoclassical architecture found all around the world. I want to continue to look into that and satisfy myself that, you know, it really is as, as ubiquitous, ubiquitous as we think it is, which I believe it really is. Another big area of interest that's on my list that I'm looking into is the uh, Dust Bowl years in America. That's the 1930s in America. The early 1930s is uh, the time frame for that. And, you know, that's the Dust Bowl years on the American Great Plains when a lot of our early agricultural farms um, of the time failed. Uh, A lot of the failures of those farms and the land, you know, that farmers defaulted on during that time uh, led to economic hardship that was coupled with the obvious uh, food shortages that came from the country's bread basket as it was known sort of collapsing on itself over the course of a very few number of years and then on top of the economic strife and lack of food we had what then became black dust storms that were a plague in and of themselves on the region between like Appalachia and the Rockies, all these plain states, the Rust Belt today, the flyover states today, whatever you, you know, denigrating term you want to have for the poor middle American states that used to be so abundant, these dust storms that were a product of, uh, you know, fallow fields uh, and bad weather combined to cause you know it to be almost unlivable in a lot of these states for a very long time uh well a very long time long enough that you know most folks from most areas at a certain point that ended up leading to right into the american great depression you know had to begin to emigrate on mass from those middle american areas to industrialized cities closer to the coasts 
there was food there. There was jobs there. There was shelter there. There wasn't dust storms there that would get into your lungs and cause you to get, you know, like a miner's lung type, uh, you know, condition. So I'm looking at the Dust Bowl because I'm saying to myself, well, mud dries out, becomes dust later on. So, and then there were those dust storms back in 01 and 03, right? And that article, that story mentions events that go back earlier than them. Again, things happen, you know, if things happen before, they could happen more than once. Um, way out in left field on my list here is CERN, the uh, super collider. Um, and a weird connection to that. Uh, or a possible weird connection to that and other particle accelerators around the world. Um, I don't know. They, they, they're they weird and interesting, and a lot of conspiracy theorists look at CERN as the big potential uh, trigger for, like, all the Mandela effect uh, phenomena, if you get into that stuff. And we haven't, we haven't fucked with Mandela effect too much here, other than mentioning it in passing. Um, I might put it on the list for 2019. I mean, there's a lot of 2019 ahead of us, so. Um, and speaking of left field, I don't know. While I've been researching all this, I also happen to have been catching back up with that Amazon show, uh, The Man in the High Castle. And things that strike me about The Man in the High Castle is how it's got an obvious, overtly, you know, well-developed and stated multiverse, you know, Nazi bell technology, Heisenberg machine technology that they are using as the main plot device that creates multiple versions of reality in their high castle universe there. Um, but what struck me more than the Mandela effect connection, and that's maybe where the CERN idea and line of thought struck me, was that the man in the high castle is interestingly sort of it oddly glorifies nazism in a way even though everybody's seemingly struggling against it the whole time they sure make them look amazing physically in terms of the 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 realm and the world and the uniforms and the uh grandeur of the set and setting for the Nazis in particular in the Man in the High Castle world. Um, I'm not going to synopsize Man in the High Castle for you guys if you haven't ever heard of it at all yet. Uh, here's my synopsis in one sentence. It's, as I already said, a multiverse storyline. It's a period piece set in a world that is post-World War II, so the 1950s or 60s. Um on an earth where the Nazis won World War II and are in an uneasy alliance with the Japanese and have dominion over pretty much the entire civilized world and everybody is obviously pretty bummed about that at the uh, oppressed level and even those who are part of the party in the case of the Nazis on the inside you know if you're a member of the American Nazi party you're a conquered people, you're not that excited about a lot of this, but, you know, if you've lost, at this point, this war is good and lost, and they're living with it now. And so, yeah. 
what I was saying was the thing that struck me the most about that show wasn't even the slight, like, potential weirdness around are they, you know, how are we, in what light are we learning about these guys here? I don't know exactly. Um, you know, you always got to wonder how you're being programmed by the programming that you're consuming. But more important than the uniforms, more important than the ceremony, more important than the ritual, more important than any of the rest was how often they depict the impressive, like intimidating, megalithic architecture of the Reich in the case of the High Castle show. Um, a lot of these buildings are obviously made up buildings that they supposedly built in the years, you know, after they won and took over everybody and everywhere. But it's like, it all looks so neoclassical, Romanesque, Tartarian. Now everything looks Tartarian to me anymore, uh, right now, because I'm on this bender. Um, that I, you know, as we say in the conspiracy realm, is the man in the high castle a form of disclosure of any of this the you know Tartarian connection or is a disclosure of CERN and efforts to you know tap into different dimensions and to make new realities uh, or some combination of the two so yeah big sidebar to the pure mud flood research there but interesting in the focus on architecture that's on that show and it always comes back around to shows oh yeah i watched a crazy and totally it's entirely possible youtube served me this video for a reason um saw a video the other day and i will include it as a one-liner specific link in the show notes here for you guys but it was about salt and salt and how important salt is just like water to human survival um, it was about an hour-long documentary, like a BBC-style documentary, so it seemed like it was like a mainstream, like, straight-laced documentary, um, not like conspiracy stuff, uh, about salt. But, the like, the last or the second-to-last salt harvesting place that they show you in this hour-long documentary where they showed you all different places around the world where people get salt and harvest salt for their communities and for trade and for their, you know, literal survival for all of our survival. Um, they showed a deep underground salt mine in Poland that was basically has been run for generations by devoutly religious Catholic Poles who have carved entire cathedrals deep under the earth out of the salt. The few minutes of footage that they showed, they showed in this mine that is so large and so old and mature that portions of it have been closed down for mining, redeveloped and opened to the public as a health spa. Think Himalayan salt lamp on steroids here, right? You go down there and bathe in high salinity water pools and probably gargle with it and take mud baths with it and you exercise down there and breathe the ionized air and you know everything it's like a it's like a resort hotel underground um 
and then these cathedrals, which aren't, by the way, open to the public, but are used by these generational clans of miners for weddings and other private events of their own. Uh, they explain in the video that everything's carved out of salt, so it's all doomed to decay and, you know, uh, dissolving in the moist air down there. When you're down there breathing in the catacombs, you know, you'll, you'll slowly dissolve the salt around you and anything that's carved out of it would, you know, they show a few, you know, Jesus figures and other sculptures that they've sculpted out of chalk or uh, salt that look like they're dissolving. But then they're in the middle of a room that's got ceilings that are 50 feet high. They've got a whole, you know, wing of the mine over there that's been turned into a spa that's not dissolving and people aren't, you know, having trouble keeping working for that purpose. Uh, and the church area or cathedral that we get to see just a moment or two of footage of appears for all the world to be in perfect shape and have a little guardrail that you can, you know, walk up to and approach and kneel to take your communion at and, you know, pulpits and a stage and, you know, alcoves and all sorts of details and, uh, you know, a tile pattern etched into the floor, columns, you name it. I mean, all around down there. And I'm saying to myself, well, How's this shit not dissolving continuously then? You mean to tell me it's dissolving continuously and it's going to be unusable pretty soon? First off, why would you carve out a hundred foot wide room? Okay, sure, you mined the salt out of it, but now you're going to turn it all into a perfect, you know, uh, replication of a above ground cathedral, but you also know it's doomed to dissolve? It, I don't know. And it didn't look like it was dissolving is my point. It all looked really sharp, really straight, really clean, really on point really you know the sacred geometry looked intact so i wasn't buying it it didn't look like a ruin uh and it was an interesting video um i'll need to look through my actual youtube history find the video on salt um watched it like two days ago but you know connections to everything that i mentioned at the beginning of the last video uh uh podcast on this it's you know deep underground military bases are connected to this mound builder culture in North America, I think is, is connected to this. Cause I think what we're looking at, if we're to sign on to this, like take the grain of salt and, and, you know, sign on to the mystery, uh, uh, thinking it's potentially a conspiracy. I look around and I see cities that have buried their own history everywhere and cities that have encased their old buildings in new skins and have built onto them to the point that they're unrecognizable um, and in the cases of the buildings that appear to be intact and historical, um, maybe in many cases the stories of how old they are isn't 100% accurate. Uh, one last other detail that I'm looking into that seems strongly tied to the uh, mud flood conspiracy is the question of orphan trains. Okay, um, we're all familiar with the little orphan Annie, you know, story. Um, I want to say also who springs to mind here is Charles Dickens, who I've read a number of his books uh, early on in my, you know, uh, literature life, but they remind me very much of, uh, you know, he was telling stories of the horrors of industrialization and child labor in a lot of cases, and he also spent a lot of time 
telling the stories of uh, orphan children. Uh, there's a big thread in the mud flood myth and uh, civilization reset conspiracy that goes along with it that, you know, a survivor civilization repopulated cities with, in many cases, mostly children. Um, and if you think about the po po possibility, you know, I just think to myself, well, if I knew a cataclysm of some kind was descending upon me right now, like I had to hit stop on recording because fucking Rainier Blue and, you know, the shit's about to hit the fan here. And they tell me that the uh, eruption is, you know, five times bigger than they ever expected. And, you know, everybody needs to get to ground and, you know, get you know, as deep in shelter as you can. If I had to choose, like any parent would, <clears throat> I would devote all my resources to saving the boys, even to my own detriment. Um, of course, best case scenario, I want my wife in there with the boys, right? Again, even to my own detriment. Um, what we have, though, is then a possibility that, you know, if your shelter or potential to shelter is marginal at best, most adults may be lost in a cataclysm or event of that sort. But many of the children might have been saved of those adults because they found the one fucking ice chest to put the kid in that would be safe enough to sustain the initial shock. And dad and mom are in splinters out in the outside of the house, but the kids down in the crawl space or in the workshop or in the fucking steel job box that they that dad stuffed them into um, sustained that initial impact, right? Kids are miserable and scared, but they lived. They come crawling out of the wreckage. They get rescued by whatever adults were left, whatever elites had the warning, had the resources, had the adequate shelter ahead of time, lived through the, in this case, Rainier eruption, super eruption that I just described, Yellowstone eruption that would fuck up half of North America, right? There's a better example. Um, my point is, is that a survivor civilization populated by more children than adults is by, like, it's got to, by definition, be a more gullible world. A world where those kids have no choice but to accept whatever story the adults who are in charge of them tell them about how the world works and where everything came from and who the fuck you even are. You don't have parents. I'm adopted, you guys. I'm fortunate. I was adopted very young, but... I could have spent years in foster. I was in the system. I was born into the system, a more or less an orphan in a sense, right? Um, I was given up for adoption. If I was born 100 years ago, 150 years ago, I would have not gone to an adoption agency in a little nice genteel suburb of New York and been, you know, booked out to a nice family on Long Island, I would have been sent to a fucking orphanage with hundreds of other kids, one of thousands, in any city in the world, in any city in North America, 
and grown up working in some little garment factory from, you know, the age of five. And maybe never been adopted. <laughs> Probably never been adopted. Would have just stayed in the system until I aged out of the orphanage at some point as, no doubt, an indentured servant of some kind to somebody. I would have went straight to where? The serving class, the untouchables class of society. And I certainly wouldn't have been overly educated beyond the very rudiments of reading, writing, and arithmetic. If any history was given to me at all, whose would it have been? Again, soapboxing. I'll stop. I've been going for a while. This has definitely been a sort of, you know, where am I getting this stuff from episode uh, for everybody. And I hope some of you made it all the way through it here. We're coming up on an hour and a half, so I'll trim it down a little bit, a couple minutes uh, if I can. Pull out a few of the ums and ahs. <clears throat> But uh, as you can tell, there's a lot to dig in on. There's a lot to do with it. And there's a lot to look at. Um, and uh, this is where I'm going to be for the next few weeks. So we will get to Star Forts and, and look at them. They're on the list too, big time, because they're tied up in this really closely. Uh, I won't read the Fomenko uh, intro to his uh, History of the New Chronology. I'll, I'll put the chronologia.org link in the show notes for you. You can check it out as well, and we will spend some time on that website and looking at the resources that he has available there for us to look into it um, from. I think, did I get to the last guy? Uh, the last researcher I wanted to tell you guys about, by the way, um, is I just found him today. He's amazing. His name is Andreas Zirtus, X-I-R-T-U-S. So I'm making up my own pronunciation of Andreas's first name right now. But he seems to be North American, and he seems to have a lot of really insightful... First off, he's a great... He's a higher-order thinker. He's very organized. He's got a great uh, sophistication to his approach, and he's got a, a sort of a raison d'etre to his approach uh, on his videos. He's really digging in deep on... Uh, Tartarian history and the civilization reset and he has talked mud flood he's got a great video about Mormon architecture and how similar their architecture and symbolism is to Tartarian culture uh, I already have added his link uh, to his YouTube channel to the show notes for you so um, I didn't want to finish this uh, podcast without mentioning uh, Mr. Zirtus X-I-R-T-U-S Andreas Zirtus Zirtus yeah, fuck. fuck I'm fucked Forget it <laughs> Alright you guys Um. Oh shit yeah I almost forgot that It's on the next line The next page of the show notes Because they're so long The Lewis and Clark expedition You guys I'm going to be looking at them Because I read I read a really uh, Famous well known Lewis and Clark expedition um, Like dramatized history called Undaunted Courage uh, oh I don't know going on 
15 years ago now, but great book, really great Lewis and Clark exposition book. It pretty much takes you, takes you through the journals almost day by day um, with a lot of, like, footnotes and extra, you know, staying put on them. So, um, but I feel like, yeah, Lewis and Clark, what did you guys really find on that expedition? What did you, you get sent out there to find? What did you find? What did we find out about what you found? What didn't we find out? Yeah. All right. Well, there it is. I've got to add music to this thing for you guys. I've got to cut out all the ums and ahs. I've got to rein it in. And uh, we'll see if, uh, you know, a few of you find your interest piqued by this area of research. I know I spent more time talking about the places to go to look about this than talking about this. But we're going to come back around on it and I want to present a little bit more of a cohesive timeline of the big picture of this in the next episode um, as I put it together myself. So help me put it together. Check it out yourselves and get back to me. Let me know what you think about Mud Flood, Grand Tartaria, Civilization Resets, what's gone down here in North America, what's gone down around the world. I know a lot of these listens and views are coming from other parts of the world than the United States and Canada. Most of my views and listens are in U.S. and Canada, but I, I love that I see that you folks are all around the world. So if you're somewhere else in particular and you've got some perspective on this, man, get at me. Talk to us at bakedandawake.com. All right, everybody, you're wonderful. Love you guys. Uh... I wish you the very best for the new year. Stick with us here on the show. Stick around. We're going to do so much more in 2019. Um, I've been enjoying the hell out of it. And uh, if I owe you stickers or if I owe you a lighter koozie or any other goodies and uh, you want to light a fire under me, get at me. DM me. Uh, I'll I'll get you squared away, my friends. Lydia, I'm talking to you. (laughs) All right, everybody. Uh... Take care. Mud flooded up. Let's get stoned. (laughs) Talk about it more real soon. Smoke that indica. And do shit anyway.
This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.